Shalom, and welcome to the 18th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN.com columnist, the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the one-of-a-kind MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism, to songwriting, to screenwriting, to hip-hop, to novels, to romance, to comics, to whatever I'm thinking of. And today's guest is John Branch, the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning writer. John just devoted a ton of his life to covering the Las Vegas shooting massacre, and one piece in particular, the girl in the number eight jersey, has really resonated with people. He won the Pulitzer for a 2013 piece called Snowfall on a deadly avalanche in Washington State, and he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist a year earlier for a series of articles about the former NHL player Derek Bugard, who overdosed on painkillers. So let's dig deep into digging deep right now on Two Riders Slinging Yang. All right, so John, first of all, um, you came by request. I had two different writers, one named Mirren Fader, who writes for Bleach Report, and then a guy I went to college with named Michael Lewis, not the Moneyball Michael Lewis, say, Mm -hmm. you need to get John Branch on. And the other thing that both of them said, and and I think what led it was your piece, uh, The Girl in the Number 8 Jersey, that appeared Mm -hmm. recently, uh, October 11th, uh, in the New York Times. And... um, I'll just, I'll be lame here and I'll start just with your, your lead, if you don't mind. Um, Good golly. Yeah, it was, uh, I was on the sideline of a soccer field two Saturdays ago watching my 12-year-old daughter and her Novato teammates. Uh, I don't remember much about that game, but Novato won, and one of the goals was scored by the smallest girl on the team, a quick and feisty forward who wears a long ponytail and jersey number eight. We whooped and cheered her name. I found out later that her parents weren't there that afternoon. They were in Las Vegas for a getaway weekend. And, um... Obviously, it turns out that the mother uh, was killed in the shooting uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, this is a story I literally just said to my wife a few week, a few minutes ago. I'm like, did you hear about this story in the Times? And she knew exactly what I was talking about. It was one of those stories that kind of uh, went viral. Um, yeah. And I, I wonder, um, how did this come to be? Well, here's the weird thing about that is that, yeah, I got called in the middle of the night of the Vegas shooting. And I'm a sports writer. I don't, I don't do this very often. But they mm-hmm. called me and said, can you get to Vegas as soon as possible? And I said, yeah, of course. Um, you live how on, far from Vegas? How far is that? I live in San Francisco. So, you know, it's, you know, if you're a New York editor, I live, you know, next door. But, <laughs> right. but yeah, I live, you know, it's 500 miles away or something. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so I got to Las Vegas. And that day I was in Las Vegas, you know, with the national reporters trying to, you know, find out all we can about what happened, who the guy was. And my wife texted me and said, um, you know, Olivia's mom and dad were at the at that concert, and Olivia's mom was missing. And I was like, "Oh my God!" I mean, here I have rushed, you know, to this to the scene of you know what was going to be fifty eight people killed by this madman, and had no idea that one of my neighbors was one of the victims or was going to become one of the victims. And so I spent the whole week there reporting, um, doing a bunch of you know, stuff that you do when you're trying to cover a big, a big news event. And I had told the national editors a couple of times that, you know, I had this weird kind of connection, but I wasn't, I wasn't pitching a story. I didn't really want to go and interview, you know, my neighbors and my friends about who this woman was. We weren't really doing victim stories. Other people were doing that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
And so I just kind of kept my head down. And on Saturday morning, I was basically told, hey, you can go back home. Thanks for your help this week. And I said, great. And I went back home and caught my daughter's soccer game. And it turns out that Olivia, the girl, was playing. So, and everybody was kind of surprised. And her dad and some family members showed up. And so, you know, it was a very emotional game. I wrote about that. Um, very emotional game. And it turns out Olivia, this little girl, scores the winning goal. I mean, everybody on the sideline. And, you know, it's not a huge thing. It's an elementary school soccer field so there's like three dozen parents there right um yeah no media or anything like that and the whole game all the parents are kind of like god i hope something good happens for her and probably a few minutes left maybe five minutes left in the game she gets a breakaway and gets past everybody else and has basically a one-on-one with a goalie and just drills it right in the corner it couldn't be any prettier and oh my god the girls went crazy for her she jumped in all the girls arms and I'm I'm tearing up thinking about it. Right. Um, we all just started bawling, and you literally I, were crying watching. This. I was literally crying. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm almost crying just thinking about it and talking about it. So it's such a weird thing. And then what was weird about it was how detached. And I, I tried to write about this a little bit. How detached I was from that because I was in Las Vegas, literally staying at the Mandalay Bay, literally in the same suite as the guy who, as the gunman, just about ten floors below. We, we had the same giant, big suite. So every day I was looking out at the same scene and back home, all my friends and a lot of my family members, we didn't know the family um, really. We just knew the little girl, uh, but a lot of my very, very good friends knew the family well or know the family well. And so everybody back home was going to these vigils. Um, they were texting me going, oh, my God, you should see it around here. They're, they're, we're putting ribbons up. People are are just bawling in each other's arms. And I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what this guy's video poker habits were. I was very detached from the emotion of it. And um, it all just hit me like a ton of bricks at that soccer game when I got back home. And so I had mentioned that to the national editors, um, you know, that I had this connection, but I didn't say anything about that story. And I wrote that as a Facebook post. And I'm not sure exactly why I wrote it. Maybe it's just therapy, but I'm like, yeah, this should be said. And Mm -hmm. so I wrote this thing up really quickly um put it on facebook probably on tuesday i didn't have time really until like monday night or tuesday my wife was nervous about it because she's like i don't know what our friends are going to say about you writing about this i'm like you know i don't worry about what people think so i'm just (laughs) going to throw it out there on facebook i threw it on facebook and like you say it kind of went viral and the the new york times um, facebook page and i have no idea who operates that they reposted it and so then it went more viral. And then I got an email message from an editor at the time saying, we're going to run your Facebook post in our paper. And it went on A1 the next day. <laughs> so it was the weirdest sort of set of circumstances. It was not like, talk to an editor. Let's talk about the story. The, the story that ran on A1 was exactly the same as my Facebook post. It wasn't, I mean, I don't think a word was changed. It taught me, if nothing else, that I should write most of my stories like a Facebook post. I mean, yes, seriously. I mean, seriously, without any, like, any thought about, well, what, how should I tackle this story? It was just me for 20 or 30 minutes writing a Facebook post. And it, and it seemed, to, it seemed to capture, I guess, some emotion for, for a lot of people. If you, took, if you took my Facebook posts and made them articles, it would be like, oh. this guy in Starbucks, what's up with this guy? Why does he keep burping? I, I was like, Jeff I'm, like Perlman, I'm like, how come you guys have never taken a Facebook post of mine before? I have all sorts of witty things to say. You guys never, you guys never run those things. Right. That's yeah. Um, so. why, now, you said something very interesting right there, which is you said, because um, your wife said, uh, you know, do you want to check? You know, should we check and make sure? And you're like, why don't I don't? I generally don't care what people think. And I, um, right. you and I are probably the same. And my wife has actually said that to me about a million times. And 
many times it has come to bite me in the ass where I will write something about someone or something that annoys me or something that bothers me or something that happened. And people will feel um, violated or sort of like a line was crossed. Um, does that never enter your mind? Did you not even here? I mean, this is yeah. a very personal thing. Were you, were you at all concerned that the dad wouldn't want in print or the daughter or a relative or something of that nature? Um, yeah, I, I didn't worry about it a whole lot. I didn't give a lot of family information. I didn't name the daughter in, in my little Facebook post. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess in the back of my mind, I was a little bit cognizant of it, mm-hmm. of sort of keeping my space. I was nervous that I didn't want this to be a story about me. Because, I mean, I didn't go through any of this. You know, right. This isn't my story. Um, it's weird for me to write in the first person. I almost never, ever do that. Um, yeah, so I think I was more nervous about, let's just make sure that this isn't about, whoa, what a weird thing for me. Um, I wanted to make this very much about this little girl. That's actually um, really interesting because I, I do feel like there's a real – so I was in New York during 9-11, and I wrote a fair amount about 9-11 for New York. And I think if I look back, one of the things I did wrong – was it is very easy to make it about you. You know, I didn't lose anyone in 9-11. I lived near it, but I didn't, I didn't lose anyone. My house wasn't destroyed, anything like that. It is a tricky thing, is it not, to write about something that happens close to you and not make it about you? Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm old school enough. I'm older than you are. Um, I'm old school enough to sort of blanch at first-person accounts and a little bit toward the trend of let's throw myself in the story. Here's mm-hmm. my experience with the story. Right. Um, I'm very much of the mind, you know, sort of the old school newspaper journalist that you are not the story. And so I don't write in first person. I have no great urge to write in first person. And so I think that that comes pretty naturally to me. And so it was weird to sort of write this in first person. And, and I, I was a little bit nervous about, about people reading this and being like, dude, you're not the story. And I hope people don't. And I don't think they did. What was the, um, did you hear from the family? I did not, no. Um, my wife, you know, we're Facebook friends with a lot, with a lot of people. Um, and, and really, I, and I think you get this. I don't honestly go back and look and see, like, what are people saying? I'm not a big guy. I don't delve into comments. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really don't care. It's like I've moved on once something's published. But right. my wife, of course, was, you know, like, oh, so-and-so shared this. And, you know, there was a ton of shares. I mean, nobody shares my Facebook post when I write about dinner or anything. But there were a ton of shares. And you could sort of see who was sharing it. And you could sort of see who liked it. And I could tell that friends of the family were liking it and sharing it. And I thought, okay, that's, that's better than the alternative. Right. That's interesting. Can you, um, can you be a journalist in 2017 and not care at all about likes and <laughs> shares and clicks? I'm actually being serious. Can you, be, yeah. can you survive in this era? Or are you a dinosaur unwilling to sort of, you know, change with the times? You know, I think it's a little bit of both those things. I'm a little bit of a dinosaur, but I'm also, I have the luxury of working for a place that doesn't care about clicks, at least to the, to the granular, granular level that I have to worry about it. Right. Um, you know, we're not judged by the traffic that our stories get. And thank God we're not judged by whether like a story I write is profitable. The kinds of things I write about tend to be so off the beaten path that if I had to be judged by the number of people clicking on it, um, I wouldn't have a job still. So luckily the New York times gets that and sees a bigger picture and we're not judging at least that, I, that I'm aware of every story individually. Like, well, should we have done that story because look how many clicks we got or we didn't get, um, you know, it's still a journalistic enterprise, at least if, if that, if that worry exists, it somehow stops right above me. It's really interesting. I just had this discussion the other day with someone and it, it was related to uh, Jamel Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it's such a different landscape now because you're, you're right. Like the New York Times is one of the few places that seems to really still put journalism, journalistic excellence uh, first and foremost. And I was saying like, if Jamel got let go by ESPN tomorrow, um, like where would she go? Because there just aren't that many places left. You know, like, yeah, it just seems like for guys, for people like us, I mean, just people who value journalism and value sort of reporting and there aren't that many outposts left. And it kind of depresses me. I don't know if it bothers you to think <laughs> about it or it's just kind of a bummer. It is kind of a bummer. Um, it, part of me is like, thank God I'm, I'm, I just turned 50. Um, thank God I'm old enough that I think I can make it through whatever is going to happen the next 10 or 20 years. Right. Um, if I was, you know, you know, I talk to students quite a bit, college students quite a bit. If, if I were 20 or 25 or 30, yeah, I'd be nervous about what the landscape looks like and is going to look like. Um, I, I just told somebody the other day that I feel, I feel lucky in that the, the route that I took, you know, is, you know, one of those swinging bridges that we all sort of take to our next destination, or maybe it's like a ladder, you know, where we all climb the ladder. And, and when I came up, it was still of the ladder was still built where you tried to get into a market and then you proved yourself for a little while and you climbed the next rung to the next bigger market. And you kind of kept climbing up as far as you wanted to go or as far as the ladder would take you. Right those ladders have been destroyed into firewood, you know, and now you have to build your own ladder. You're taking the kindling, basically trying to build your own ladder. And I'm fortunate enough that I don't have to deal with that. And so, yeah, if I was 25 and I was trying to get into this business, I'd be, I'd be nervous about what that path looks like because that path has been destroyed. And I'm confident that if you're good, if you're, if you're talented and you're driven, you'll make your path. Um, but it's certainly not obvious the way it used to be. I just remember I was at the university of Delaware and I got it. My dream was Sports Illustrated. And I knew I had to go to a newspaper and then probably another newspaper. Mm-hmm. And then you work your way up. And, and then you could be at this magazine where it has tons of money and it's great. And, and exactly. now I just, you know, where's that magazine? Well, well, yeah, exactly. When I went back to school, I, I went back um, to school to get a journalism degree to kind of change my career. And um, where'd you go? I went to Colorado, um, both my undergrad and my graduate in Boulder. And so I went back to school and I told my wife this very thing. I said, there's a good chance. Now, I was like 28 or 29 at the time. I said, there's a good chance when I get out of grad school, we're going to move to Ottumwa, Iowa to cover high school football. Right. I mean, that's kind of where I thought it would probably go. And then I'll hopefully be there for a couple of years and move on to, you know, whatever the next bigger step from Ottumwa, Iowa was. Um, I don't know why Atumwa, poor Atumwa was my, uh, my example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was the thing. You start somewhere small and you build your way up and to wherever, until you got happy enough to stay or until you realize this is about as far as it's going to go. And your first spot was where? Stop. Uh, Colorado Springs Gazette. I got very, very lucky. I walked into a pretty good size newspaper um, right. with my first job. Yeah. Right. Actually, you and I were sim- I started in Nashville at the Tennessean. Yep. So sort of a yep. similar. And it's, it's interesting. I always tell my students kind of what you said i teach at uh chapman out here in in southern california and i say um i say you have to be if you really want to make in journalism it is worth it it's amazing it's great but you have to be the guy willing to move to topeka or willing to move you just have to be it's it's one thing to want it you know what i mean like it's one thing to want it and it's one thing to really want it and crave it and i think that's what separates people I think you're right. Cause I think, you know, and you talk to college students every day. I talk to them every once in a while 
and a lot of them have like this path figured out in their head and they're mm. from a certain town and they go into college, maybe at Chapman or at UCLA. And they're like, yeah, someday I want to work for the paper in uh, Ventura. And then maybe I'll get to, you know, whatever. And then maybe I'll get to Orange County Register. And they have this idea that's going to all happen somehow geographically around them. Yeah, right. And I think you are limiting yourself so much by trying to figure out that it's going to happen near you. You've got to be willing to open, to walk through any open door. Um, and that's what I tell them. I said, doors will open. You just have to be willing to walk through them. Also, don't you think there's something to be said for being 21 and living in Urbana, Illinois? <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 What's so bad about that? Right. Well, I, live, I actually interned in Urbana and it, it was horrible. So I can tell you, it was not, <laughs> <laughs> it was not good. But yeah. Yeah. Wrong question. Um, yeah. I am fascinated, <laughs> fascinated, fascinated, fascinated by, um, by your coverage in Las Vegas because I just, <laughs> Number one, I thought it was insanely good. Um, and number two, I just, I think it is interesting to be thrown into a tragedy because, and correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe you had a different experience. You don't become numb to it, but you, you sort of charge ahead like a bullet. I don't know. Yeah. I, you have no idea where it's going to go like minute to minute, hour by hour. So how'd you do it? Like, what was your course of action? They fly, we want you to go to Las Vegas. What happens? Yeah, so I landed there and I got to the rental car place in Vegas. And I'm like, so what am I doing? I, I've got a car rented. Where do you want me to go? And I thought they would send me to Mesquite or somewhere. The guy had a house, you know, mm -hmm. um, figured they'd send me off to some far flung place. And they said, get yourself a room at the Mandalay Bay. And I said, okay, I'll see what I can do. And um, they wanted me to explore this guy's world in gambling. And so I basically went to the Mandalay Bay and of course, you know, this is 12 hours after the shooting. You can't get a room at the Mandalay Bay. There's police everywhere, um, hanging around the lobby, talking to anybody that was an employee that would whisper anything to me, you know, just sort of making small talk with people about who this guy was. And we're just trying to pull at any sort of thread we can get. And, you know, I wasn't just thinking about the gambling part of it, but like, who was this guy? Did you ever meet the guy? Did you ever see him? When was he here last? When was he, when did he check in? You know, all these questions that have slowly emerged since then or answers that have slowly emerged, we were still trying to figure out. And I was one of, I don't know, eight or nine reporters who landed in Vegas within that first 24 hours. From the so Times. From the Times. Mm -hmm. And so we all just sort of, let's see what we can figure out. And the Times has a, has a thing. The National Desk has a thing where any any nuggets that you get, you throw into basically an email chain. And um, so you're constantly getting emails from people going, here's what we hear. Here's, I just talked to somebody who said this. And so it's sparking constant conversations and brainstorming, which was kind of exciting. Yeah. Um, so much of what I do is so solitary anymore. Right. Um, it was sort of exciting to sort of be with a bunch of people, some of whom I knew, some of whom I've only read their bylines. Frankly, I'd never met them before. And it was kind of exciting to be thrown into like this breaking news story that you knew the whole world was watching. Right. Well, what most, of my, most of my reporting doesn't happen that way. Most of my reporting happens when nobody's watching and nobody has any clue what John Branch is doing right now. Right. What, what would be an example, if you could give one, of getting a piece of information, like how a piece of information that you got from talking to someone or, you know, someone confiding in you, like how does that actually happen? Yeah. So, you know, I, I've known people who have worked in Vegas at the newspapers there who are either current or former mm -hmm. employees there. And so made some connections right away with some people who could put me in touch with other people who could put me in touch with other people. So initially it was a lot of phone calls and like, hey, what who else should I talk to? Who would know more about this guy? Who would know about, you know, from the casino side? Um, just trying to figure out where 
some little tidbits would come from. And pretty quickly in the first couple of hours, um, learned a couple of the casinos that he spent time at, learned what kind of games he liked. The, the first day, nobody really knew exactly what kind of gambling he did. It was just that he was a big gambler and nobody really knew what that meant. Um, people were saying he was a hundred dollar hand poker player, which if you're playing poker at a table, doesn't really make sense. You don't play a hundred dollar hand because there's right. a pot. And so figured out pretty quickly that he was a video poker player and he was playing at these certain machines and he was playing $25 a hand, which with the multipliers meant every time he was pushing the button was usually $125. And Wait, but how would someone even know that? That's what I mean. Like, how would you actually find out? that he plays $25 hands at a poker machine. <laughs> it's um, you talk to enough people who I think the casino business, as I learned is pretty small. And so mm -hmm. people kind of know, you know, a lot of it's secondhand information, but it's people who know people. And so we had a lot of people who knew people that knew things. And so, and we had so many reporters working on different things that pretty soon you're like corroborating going, wait, we're hearing this from more than one spot. Let's try to drill down on this and find out more about well, we can. And if you don't know for sure, it doesn't make print. But, right. you know, those first four or six hours, you're just trying to get anything you can. It's really fascinating. Um, is it weird? Is it weird to be excited at the same time you were covering, covering such a horrible event? Um, it is weird. Um, and I don't think you I don't think you lose sight of what you're doing. I mean, there's no like dark humor to the whole thing. I mean, this is this is serious. And. All I had to do literally was look out my window and I could overlook, I was overlooking through this, the giant floor to ceiling windows overlooking where 58 people were killed. Um, so it, yeah, it was, it was exciting only in a journalistic sense, you know, that you're part of something and you're covering something and you knew people were depending on you. There were editors in New York wondering what you're going to tell them in the next hour, what you've learned. And so you feel a little bit of that pressure. Um, I would say it's, it's adrenaline more than excitement. Right. Uh, um, yeah, and I think it's you know it's good to tickle those, you know those uh, journalistic parts of you as as much as you can or whenever you can. I think it's weird. Like I um I when I think about I've doing this podcast has caused me to think a lot about sort of journalism and and what I've done as a journalist. And I it is something that I think primarily only journalists can understand, which is the rush. You know, I've covered murders, I've covered crime scenes, I've covered all this stuff, and there is a rush, an absolute rush that comes with getting information that is the most horrible information you could ever get. But there's a weird, right? There's a weird yeah. yin yang of it all. Like you love it and you are horrified by it simultaneously. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like the old journalism um, cliche about how, you know, in the newsroom, somebody goes, there's a huge fire and people have died and people in the newsroom go, yes. And they right. all run out of the, out of the building. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're all, you know, they're all excited about this news. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's what we do. And so, I, I, you know, you can't really apologize for it. I, I can't say I'm excited for it or that I'm wishing for bad news. And again, I'm a sports writer, so this is not a, a usual thing for me. Um, but, you know, these national folks, I mean, some of them were in Vegas and then they either went straight from Las Vegas to San Francisco or they went home for about an hour before all of a sudden there's wildfires in San Francisco. And then suddenly they're in Santa Rosa, California, talking to people who just lost their homes. I mean, that, there's a breed of journalists who just says – you know, I'm going to jump into whatever the next horrible event is going to be, a hurricane, a shooting, a fire, and report the hell out of it. Um, and that's exciting. I mean, you have to be, you have to have energy um, to, to be able to deal with that. Yeah, that's interesting. It's also why I think I'm a sports writer, because I don't think I could deal with that. I don't think I could take the mental battering um, of yeah. shooting fire murder, shooting fire murder.
over and over. Yeah, and over. I'm not. I'm not sure I could. I think. I think you kind of get numb to it, like you said about the Vegas thing. I was there for a week and never really was emotional about the whole thing. It was weird and and kind of surreal and a little out of body as I'm looking out over where these people all died and and I'm watching videos of the exact same spot that people had been posting online. But none of it, like I said, none of it really hit me until I actually got back to my own neighborhood of all things. You, um, you did a very interesting Q and a with the guy, a a man named Floyd Conrad, a 50 year old storage administrator who was in the room below the shooters. Um, and was in the room when it happened. Uh, how did you get that interview? Yeah, uh, I wasn't first. Uh, the Kansas City Star tracked him down. Like he's from Topeka or works in the Topeka area, okay. and so I had seen somehow it came to my attention that you know this Kansas City Star, or I think actually a TV station in Kansas City first had it, and so I tracked down um, some information on on Floyd and tried to get a phone number for him. And got a cell note number for him and called him. He was still in the hotel. And I said, here's what I'm calling. I want to basically talk to you about this. And yeah, he, he was in the room down below. There were actually two rooms down below. There was a suite, and which we've all talked about. And there's also a, um, a standard room that was an adjoining room and that the the gunman used you know that you we've all seen the, the picture from outside of the Mandalay Bay of the two windows that are blown out. One of those was in the standard room and one was in the suite. And right. so Floyd was in that standard room. Um, and it was, you know, not to take questions away from you, but the, it was chilling. What I took away from that was it was chilling hearing him describe how he heard something and thought it was fireworks at first, kind of that we've all seen on the video. Yeah. And then he heard it again and he's like looking out the window going, is that fireworks? I don't see any fireworks out there in the sky. And then all of a sudden he hears a right above his head. And that was apparently when the gunman was like literally – you know, what, four feet over the top of his head, standing there, right. shooting people. Did, then it got really loud. Did you interview Floyd in person? I did not. It was no. on the phone. Does it make it a difference? That, there's an interest. Does it, does it make a difference interviewing someone in person versus the phone? De- definitely. Um, and it's interesting about that one. I guess I, I could have, should have. He was at a convention, and I probably could have said, hey, I'll come meet you for coffee. But I was excited. To, I had him on the phone. He was willing to answer questions. And I said, let's just ask these questions. And I knew we were kind of hungry for information. So it wasn't like, hey, I'll meet you in an hour. I just wanted to do it. But normally, I'm I'm always of the mind of I will come meet you for coffee. I'd much rather do it face to face. Right, man. Does this does this? I mean, does this? It has to go down as the. Uh, is it the most memorable week of your journalistic career, or is that too simplistic? Um, probably too simplistic. But I have a horrible memory for my career. <laughs> so, so yeah, as of now, yeah, right. I suppose so. Yeah, that's funny. Um, to get away from Vegas, you uh, you wrote a story that I read. Uh, back when it came out um, that you want a Pulitzer for Snowfall, the avalanche at Tunnel Creek and um, ridiculously good. I mean, like ridiculously good, like the kind of story there's stories out there. Wright Thompson talked about this in a previous episode. There are stories out there you read and you think, you know, that's great, but I, I could hang, I could probably hang with that. And then there are stories you read when you think, fuck, I could not, I can't touch this. And I, I feel like this is, one of those stories, I'll just give a quick, so readers, uh, the snow burst through the trees with no warning, but a last second whoosh, whoosh of sound, a two-story wall of white and Chris Ru- Rudolph's piercing cry, avalanche, Elise, the very thing the 16 skiers and snowboarders had sought, fresh, soft snow, instantly became the enemy. Somewhere above, a pristine meadow uh, cracked in the shape of a lightning bolt, slicing a slab nearby 200 feet across and three feet deep. Gravity did the rest. 
I, I was going to go a little more because it's so good. Snow shattered and spilled down the slope. Within seconds, the avalanche was the size of more than a 1,000 cars barreling down the mountain and weighed millions of pounds. Moving about 70 meters per hour, it crashed through the sturdy old-growth trees, snapping their limbs and shredding bark from their trunks. That's so freaking ridiculously good. It actually pisses me off in a way. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, uh, my God. How there's, a lot, get... there's a lot of adjectives in there. But there? you know what? I'll tell you what's funny. I always tell my students, I always go through stories and slice adjectives, but they work here. It's a rare story where you're like, ah, you know, it kind of works. Um, how'd this story happen? How'd this come to you? Yeah, so that avalanche happened in 2012 in February. And we, it had been a really deadly year for avalanches. And so we had a stringer in Denver write kind of a next day story talking about that avalanche and another one that happened, that, I think, that same weekend. And basically, it was an A1 kind of timesian story about this has been an extraordinarily deadly winter for avalanches. And some of the people who have been caught up in them have been expert skiers. And it was a, it was a great little next day A1 story. Had all the, all the little nuggets. And about three months later or two months later, Joe Sexton, who was yep, the sports writer at the time, great writer, great personality, great New York personality, mm-hmm. My sports editor at the time said, do you remember that story? And I was like, no, not really. I'm kind of. And he <laughs> said, um, he goes, I think there's something more there. I mean, it was his idea. He said, I, you know, if it's true that more people are going to the backcountry, if it's true that they're being enticed by the open gate policies of ski areas and the advances in equipment and the safety advances of beacons and things, maybe this is like a trend story. And said, why don't you take a look at it and think about how to approach this? You and had no so, expertise in the area of I had no avalanches. No. Or, yeah. I grew up in Colorado. I, okay. I knew how to ski. That was right. basically my, my expertise. I had no expertise. I think he recognized that avalanches were something that we hadn't really seen written about as like a, um, as a, a genre, a tragedy genre or something. I don't know what exactly was going through his mind. But, um, you know, looking back at that previous season, this was now May or April, I suppose, and – you know, season was over and I looked back and that avalanche in Washington was the deadliest one. And most avalanches, you know, in a typical year will kill anywhere from two dozen people in, in the U S to three dozen or four dozen people. And, um, so I said, this is the most deadly one. And what's interesting about this among other things is that there were a lot of witnesses to it. Most of these avalanches happen and some guy or two people skiing in the backcountry, and an avalanche happens and right. nobody survives and nobody really saw it. This one, there were witnesses. And so I just started making a couple of phone calls to a couple of people um, who were there. And again, asked if I could come, for the most part, asked if I can come talk to them in person about what the experience was. And you know, as I told people before, this started really with no ambition other than maybe there's a story there. There was no ambition for what you see as an incredible multimedia that was built around it. Yeah. No, no idea this would be a 17,000-word story, I think it was. I mean, it was, it was like another 1,000-word story. Let's see what we can do. And it kind of grew organically into this bigger thing. Man, it's really, really ridiculously good. Um, and the multimedia aspect was, I mean, it was kind of when... It, it's insane. Me, it was the story when the New York Times... It was actually the story where I think for a lot of people sort of got the idea what the New York Times could really do with multimedia um, yeah. because it was so good. It was amazing. Um, and I'm proud that my story, that my text um, was the story that they kind of built that around. And I, and I do think, you know, as Jill Abramson, the former executive editor has pointed out, 
snowfall then became a verb. And it was even a verb in our own newsroom where people would say, hey, you know, to the graphics people, can you guys snowfall the story for us? Oh, funny. You know, um, now people, you know, will say we got to snowfall this, meaning we have to put like this really incredible graphics and visuals around the story. Um, I'll tell you a, a quick anecdote. Please. About, I mean, I had done this reporting. We knew we had a pretty good story. We knew that it was going to be bigger than just a typical story. And so we had, I had actually flown to New York. We had done some meetings about what kind of graphics would be useful for the story. And one of the things I'm most proud of is that all the graphics that you see in there are not just, you know, bells and whistles, or as I call them, decorative pillows. You know, they are, they are part of the journalism. They are, a reader will learn things by looking at them. They won't just be like, wow, that's cool. They'll be like, oh, I, th that's part of the story. Right. Um, and so we talked about what those elements should be. And I remember when I got back a couple of weeks later, I, I got a call from one of the graphics guys and he was doing this flyover part of the, of the graphics. It was going to be his graphic. And he said, Hey, are you somewhere where I can throw this into a Dropbox?" And I'll make, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sitting here. And so he goes, take a look at this and let me know what you think. And when I opened it up, it was the very first graphic, big graphic that you see in Snowfall, which is basically like a, a, an airplane view of you going toward a snowy ski area. And you swing down over it and you loop around it to see what the backside of the ski area is, which is where the um, avalanche was. My mind was blown. I'm like, holy crap, this is, yeah. this is what we're talking about. This is the level of graphics that are capable and that became one of the five or six major graphics of that thing. But it blew my mind. I had no expectation for that. I had no idea we could do that either. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Um, how do you – 17,000 word stories, no joke. I mean, that's like uh, – that's no joke. That's intense and that's long. Do you – how many days does that take you to do? Are you the kind of guy who's writing and you think everything you write sucks and you go back and change it? Or, totally. So what, um, I, what is that like? Yeah, it's – it's funny, the year before I had written um, a piece about Derek Bogart, the enforcer who died, and that was a three-piece or three-part series that was like 15,000 words, like 5,000 words each. And I remember Joe Sexton, when we talked about it after I'd done a bunch of the reporting, he said, you know, this could be a big story. I mean, we could break it up into parts maybe. I'm like, yeah, he goes, that'd be cool. And he goes, maybe like 5,000 words. I'm like, wow, 5,000 words. I've never <laughs> written, written 5,000 words. And like I said, you know, I mean like three – Three sec three parts into five thousand words. He's like, yeah, it's like fifteen thousand words. I'm like, fifteen thousand words? Are you out of your mind? I'd never written more than like fourteen hundred or something. Um, so this idea that I'm some sort of like weird long form journalist that's that's kind of a new concept for me. Uh, it's not like my background really. So then when Snowfall came along and we were doing it, we knew that the paradigm had been set that you know in certain cases that times will allow you to write this long and so i just wrote it and i think the first version of it was probably about 30,000 words and um yeah i don't love it um i know you, i've heard you talk about this on your podcast i'm not a guy who loves to write um I, I don't believe people who say they love to write i think it's hard it's a pain um everything i read i don't like of that i've written it's very, very rare that I read someone go like, oh, that's good. Interesting. I usually hate it. I hate it. And the only Even way, that... you know what's funny? Even when I just read your lead, which was great, you're, you made fun of your adjectives. You're like, <laughs> yeah, a lot of adjectives there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the stories I like the best are the ones that I wrote the longest ago because I, they sound good to me. I think I've forgotten all the, all the decisions I made into, that went into going or that, that went into making that sentence or that story. So I read stories from like when I was in, at the Colorado Springs Gazette 20 years ago and go, wow, that was really good. Am I getting worse as a writer? Because that was pretty good. Right. 
That's funny. I could get in your head and make you totally mental and tell you, yes, you actually are getting worse. It, yes. I, I, it, it might, it might totally be true. I might believe, <laughs> I might believe you, but the story, you know, the last story I did, you know, or the one before the Jersey number eight, whatever that one might've been, I probably look back at it now. And when I read it, I think of all the things that are not in it or all the little decisions i made that I'm still maybe not comfortable with along the way. Oh, and yeah. it, you know, when you have the, the luxury of time, when you go back and read a story a year later or two years later or 10 years later, you don't remember all that. All you see is the words and you think, oh, that's actually pretty good. Are you like me where like I'll read a story I wrote and I'll see that I repeated a word maybe in back to back paragraphs and it will. Yeah, it will eat me up, like eat me up. Are you that way or are you not that bad? I'm, I am that way, but I'm also not somebody who um, who fixates a whole lot on what I've done. Once it's filed, it's kind of out of my head. I, even when they send me back playbacks, you know, the editors will read it and they'll say, OK, here's a playback, you know. I'll, I should really look at it word by word, but by that time I'm like kind of scared to look at it because I'm right. afraid I don't like it and I'm afraid I'll want to blow it up. So I just kind of go, yeah, okay, it's all fine. Yeah, it's good. And yeah. I just, and I move on and I start reporting the next story. And when it runs, I kind of, I wince hoping that I don't get an email saying there's a correction. I wince when an email comes along or a, you know, a, a tweet comes along and I'm like, oh, did I screw something up? You know, I, I don't have a ton of confidence when things are first published. And I, I think as a defense mechanism, I just kind of move on to the next thing. What's your worst, what's your worst mistake you've made as a journalist? Oh, oh I, um, I invented a country. Um, <laughs> you and Donald yeah. Trump. You're yeah. yeah, I invented a country. Um, I was writing about um, the guys who were climbing the Don Wall um, two years ago. And I, had, I couldn't remember if Tommy Caldwell had been climbing in – Kazakhstan or had been kidnapped in Uzbekistan and okay. I mixed them up. And then when I typed it back in, I created Uzbekistan no, or Kazbekistan. Uz I, I invented Kazbekistan. And so, <laughs> so the story then went live for five minutes, 10 minutes and somebody on the desk caught it and they're like, this, this doesn't exist. I'm like, Oh my God, I totally spelled that wrong. It was a, you know, I backspaced and did it wrong. You got to fix that, of course. And then it became a correction. I think if you look at one of those stories, it'll still say a correction. Um, you know, whatever the it, whatever the correction says, but the last line of it is like a, a stake in the heart, where it says um, that country does not exist. <laughs> that's I'm awesome. Like, I'm like, whoever wrote the corrections, thank you very much for that. Yeah, that's really and good. It, and it pissed me off just because I mean, it literally was up for ten minutes. No reader, I don't think, had noticed it. You know, it was like we caught it. I'm like. Right. And, and I imagine I haven't looked probably because I'm scared to look, but I imagine if you look now, two years later, that correction still sits there as if it ran in the paper that way. And, you know, I'm like, that's really embarrassing. But yeah, I invented a country. So when Donald Trump did that, I thought, yeah, I've been there. Right. You got something in common. I got something. Yeah. Um, you wrote a book that came out in 2014 based on the uh, or sort of spawning from the story yeah. you did on Derek Bugard uh, called Boy on Ice, the life and death of uh, Derek Bugard. And, and I would never ever write a hockey book <laughs> that's because that's because you want to make money you want well to read it. i do i do need to make money and people they're always you know there's kind of the, the the cliche in sports books that you know which sports sell and which don't and right hockey books generally don't um your book got insanely good reviews uh it was talked about it was discussed i have no idea if it sold or not did it sell um, yeah, I don't, again, I don't really know. I got an advance for it. So I wasn't okay. that concerned about the sales. Right. Right. Um, I was never going to get that, that was any residuals. Um, so I didn't worry about it a whole lot. So I don't know exactly how well it sold. I know the publisher liked it enough that they offered me another book deal 
um, since then. So I guess they thought it did okay. Did you enjoy writing a book and how did you sort of attack a book? Um, no, I didn't enjoy writing a book <laughs> and I, and I swore I would never, ever do it again. I mean, people like you that write books, I don't know how you do it. I walk into bookstores and I think, who are you people? You people are crazy people. Cause we have no life, man. Yeah. Well, I think two things. One, who are you people that have no life yeah, right. <laughs> that, yeah, that write me. these books? Yeah. And, and then who are you publishers that are like publishing these books? Cause that's hard. That's yeah. a big thing. That's like a, a bucket list kind of thing. And I'm, I'm always, uh, nowadays I'm thrown when I walk into a bookstore or a library and just see the huge number of volumes of books and thinking there are a lot of people out there that somehow got this done. It's, yeah. it's incredible to me. Um, no, what was I, the hardest I, part? What was the hard part for you? The hard part for me is that I had a full-time job doing it um, while I was doing it. And so it, it was, it's brutal on the family. I was doing it nights and weekends and every vacation. And I was the distant dad locked up in the back room. Um, yeah. So it was not fun. Um, but it, you know, I see writing sort of like jogging. I'm, I'm a runner or a jogger, uh-huh. probably more accurately. Um, I don't love doing it, but I love the feeling when it's over. Yeah. And, and I think that's why I write. And I think it's why I'm proud of the book. I'm looking at a stack of them. Obviously, it didn't sell that well. I've got a stack of them sitting <laughs> right in front of me. Right. Um, so still, so if you want one, I can send you one. Right. Um, yeah, but I, but I love the accomplishment of it. And um, I'm, very pr- I'm very proud of that book. I, I, I adore the story. I adore the everything it stands for. And I think it's, it's an important book, you know, in terms of the, the, the subject matter and so on. So I'm glad I wrote it, but it's, it was difficult and um, you know, it's tough to do under any circumstances. And I think it's really tough to do when you're trying to work as many hours as I work for the New York times. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to give up my times gig to write a book. I just want to say, I love that you pretty much feel about writing the way I, I mean, it's the Dorothy Parker quote. I think it was Dorothy Parker. I hate writing by love having written. Yeah. Um, wait, is that right? No. Yeah, he writing I love having written. Right. Um, I don't think she jogged, but if she jogged, yeah. she would have said, said it like me. I kind of agree with you. Even I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I was a runner for many years until my back went out, and I always felt the same. You know, it's like a marathon. Have you done any marathons? No, no. Are you crazy? No, okay. Marath- marathons like book writing. Why would yeah, you do that? Exactly. All right. So I did a bunch of marathons, and you're at the you're at the seventeenth mile, and you're like, I'm never doing this again. You're at the twentieth <laughs> mile, you're like, this is the worst. <laughs> what the fuck am I even thinking? This is the worst. And then you're done. You're like, all right, when can I do another one? When am I going to do another one? And I feel like writing, I don't even get it. Like, why do we do this crap? (laughs) You know what I mean, though? Why do we do this crap? It's so, I don't don't even know. know. I might put in my resignation tomorrow. Yeah. You know what? Let's open a juice. You and I, let's open a juice. (laughs) Want to open a juice shop? That sounds sounds really easy. Yeah. Nice. Um, Let me ask you about one final story, uh, which I really liked. You wrote a piece, uh, I I think it it ran this year, The Awakening of Colin Kaepernick. Did that run this year? Yeah, it did, just a few weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, and um, it's really interesting because uh, you basically were trying to find how Colin Kaepernick be- became Colin Kaepernick. Um, and he didn't speak to you for the story, and I was kind of wondering, right. did, how, what kind of efforts were made, or did you know from the beginning he wouldn't talk, and did that matter? Um, I assumed he wouldn't, um, but you have to make the effort. And so everybody I talked to that had some sort of connection to him, I'm like, can you please get him the message that I want to talk to him? I didn't, I don't have a, I don't have a cell phone number or something. And so I was trying to get, you know, through his agent and everybody else that I had talked to that I knew was directly connected to him. Please make sure he knows, please make sure he knows. And I had to know if nothing else that he declined. Mm -hmm. So finally I was getting answers like, you know, Hey, does he know that I want to get a hold of him? Does he know I want to speak to him that I'm willing to come to New York and talk to him? Does he know this? And when I got a few people saying, yes, he knows this. I'm like, okay. So he declines to talk to me. Yes. Thank you. That's all I need to know. 
Um, I didn't, I mean, he hadn't really talked to anybody and, and still really hasn't talked to anybody um, in the media about being quoted. So I, I knew that going in. And so you just try to, you know, dabble around the edges. It's not, it's not ideal, but I think it sort of forces you to think differently about how you might approach this. Um, and so you just try to find people that maybe haven't been, you know, especially as a times writer, you're trying to figure out what have we not reported before? You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff we do isn't necessarily original, but it's like, what have we not, what have we not heard? What have our readers not heard about him before? And the, you know, the Colin Kaepernick story was again, one that an editor came to me and said, we think we should do a Colin Kaepernick story. It's the start of the year. And he's obviously the big topic. And I'm like, I live in the Bay area. Aren't we all Colin Kaepernick out yet? You know, what else is there to say? Um, but yeah, I'll see what I can do. And you know, like any, any story, you spend a few days or however much time you have doing as much as you can. And then you try to put it all together into something that makes sense. And did you, I mean, do you walk away? It's really interesting. I did a Q and a on my website with, uh, Ann Killian, who's a, a columnist yep. in San Francisco. Yep. Really good. Oh, you know, good friend of mine. Yep. Oh yeah. Ann is great. And, um, I asked her about Kaepernick and, and she was sort of, you know, she, she thought he was a really interesting guy at the beginning. And then he became kind of a jerk as he became more of a big celebrity and blah, 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 blah. And, and I just had last week on this podcast, I had Jonathan Ike, who wrote the great Muhammad Ali biography. And, and uh, you know, I read that book and I kind of, I almost found in a way Muhammad Ali slightly, um, not disappointing, but really kind of human in that you're like, oh, this is, this is the guy. And I wonder with Kaepernick, he's sort of been, he spearheaded such a huge movement and such a profound movement. And you work on this really long story about him. Is he... I don't have an answer for this. Is he worthy of the movement? Wow, that's a that's a good question. Um, it's interesting. You know, I'm not certainly not the first one to have written about Colin, and not the last. And, and at the same time, I wrote this. Other people were writing about this, who were who maybe had better stories than I did. One thing that I have, and I think you appreciate this, is that I I couldn't throw any opinion in this. Right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is basically like let's talk to people and and try to get people who maybe aren't football fans who maybe have heard of Colin Kaepernick, but only know him if at all, because he's the guy that kneeled and like, they don't know anything about him. And so, I, you know, I, I always tell people I'm writing for the woman up on the Upper East side, just as much as I'm writing for anybody who's ever, who's a 49ers fan for sure. Um, so you're just trying to find out as, as much as you can. And so is he worthy of movement? It wasn't really a question I had to answer. Um, I certainly have opinions about it, I guess. Right. Um, I, I don't think he realized how big it was going to become. Um, I would imagine. Um, I think he was probably taken aback those first few days um, in the first few weeks, um, just how big a deal it became or what a chord it struck. Uh, I'd be interested, you know, to read his autobiography someday, you know, if he says what he would do differently, if anything. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. I, I think I, I think it's fascinating. And certainly my thoughts on the whole thing have evolved over the year that since he first started doing this, um, you know, two or three years ago when he became uh, the starting quarterback for the 49ers, you know, he took over for Alex Smith, who everybody loved because he seemed like a nice guy and he's a gregarious guy. And then Colin Kaepernick comes along and he was in relative terms and in very shallow terms in terms of how the media per uh, perceives things was more difficult, right? He wasn't answering questions. He was being sort of um, standoffish. Standoffish and difficult. And, you, you know, as any reporter who stands there in a press conference or at a locker is like, why is this guy being like this? It, it's such an easy thing. We're only asking you to do this twice a week. Can you just not be cordial? He had he had a lot of that. Um, so when this all first came up, I thought, I'm not sure he's necessarily like the right 
face for this movement. Um, but now that I have a year later, a pers perspective, I'm like, no, this all makes perfect sense. I mean, this, and it, and it doesn't matter who the face is, you know, only what matters is the message. Um, and, and I think, you know, a year ago, maybe I wouldn't have necessarily thought that I would have been more focused on him, but now I'm like, can we, can we talk about what he's trying to say as opposed to the guy that's trying to say it? Yeah, that was actually well said. I, I do agree with you. Um, let me ask you one last thing and I'll let you go. And this is completely yep. random. I don't even know why it entered my head. Um, <laughs> more and more writers, I feel like these days don't mind hiding that they root for teams. Um, I feel like you see it all the time on social media. It'll be like yeah. Bleacher Report columnist and diehard Duke fan or so-and-so columnist and love the Raiders. Yeah. Uh, you okay with that or not at all? No, no. I think it's weird. Um, and I think it's unprofessional and, and I'm not sure why we would do it. And I realize I'm, I'm the guy who's like, get off my lawn. But the, you know, my allegiance has died a long time ago. I grew up just like everybody else. I was a huge fan of certain teams. Um, and I realized basically as soon as you step into one locker room of a team that you really liked, and then you step into a locker room of a team that you really maybe didn't like, and you realize it's all the same thing. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm constantly quoting the Jerry Seinfeld routine. Like it's just laundry and you right. realize it is just laundry. Right. Um, and so I've lost all of the allegiances. So I think it's weird in some ways. And I, and I, I tell people who are, are young potential sports writers, like there's one thing you probably don't realize if you get into this business. And that is you're going to drop your allegiances. This is going to suck. What you think of as fun, the fun part of sports is going to suck that part away. It'll open up other avenues of fun and give you, um, you know, backstage access, whatever else. But you have to realize those days of painting your face and going crazy, those are gone. You got to be willing to give those up. And so it's strange to me that some people try to kind of hang on to those. And I, I guess, you know, if you're trying to do it because you want to at least have one thread of what brought you to become a sports writer in the first place. I guess I kind of understand that, but I've, I've cut those threads long ago. It's kind of funny. Uh, earlier today, I don't remember the guy's name, but there was a Redskins defensive back who uh, intercepted a pass and he, uh, he waved at the opposing quarterback after he intercepted the pass and kind of taunting him. <laughs> and I wrote on Twitter something like, you know, I don't know, whatever, some old man, he shows some professionalism. And some guy, <laughs> some Redskins fan tweets at me, butthurt? You know, and you feel like being like, buddy, I don't care who wins the Redskins 49ers game any more than I care what color your hat is. Like, I don't right. care. You know, like people right. think, oh, he's biased because we don't care. We don't care. Right. We don't care. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I spent three years covering the New York football giants for the Times. And, and uh, you know, I had just moved to New York to do it. And people think I'm a huge Giants fan. Or you're from New York. I'm like, no, actually, I'm from the same town you are back in California. Right. You just assume, I guess, that I would be a big cheerleader for this team that I happen to cover. Right. Um, don't care. Yeah, yeah, I really don't care. And it's funny because there are – the only reason it comes up at all is there are certain I, – I tend to root for teams because of the story. I mean, that's the cliche, sure. right? We root for the story. What, who, who do I want to win this game? Whatever the better story is. Um, and there are certain franchises you kind of maybe get to know a little bit better than others, and you're like, I like those owners. I can root for them. Or you go, those owners are jerks. <laughs> I, I don't really want them to win. And so it comes up now that I have kids because I'll kind of say, yeah, you guys don't, you guys don't want to root for them. You know, I don't really tell them why, but right, yeah, right. I, you, I don't really, you probably shouldn't be a fan of those guys. And oh yeah, you can be a fan of those guys. You know, right. so I, I guess I kind of steer people maybe a certain way, but I don't do it myself. Did you root for either Adrian Dion or Cliff Branch? 
<laughs> uh, Cliff Branch. Yeah, no doubt. You know why? Because he was a Colorado guy, too. Ah, there you uh, go. He went to Colorado, too. And yeah, and even though I was growing up in Denver, I was, uh, I loved Cliff Branch of the Raiders. Yeah. How could you not? Number 21. Number 21. Exactly. Yeah. Number 21. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, listen, John, I, first of all, we're, you're definitely the first guest where we could both say the number of Cliff Branch uh, <laughs> without looking it up. But I, um, I really, really, truly, truly uh, have great admiration for your work. And I thought you're, what you did in Las Vegas uh, under very trying circumstances was just phenomenal. So thanks. Yeah, really great. And, uh, and you know, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me here today. A pleasure, Jeff. I love your podcast and I'm, um, I'm honored to be part of it. All right. Thanks so much. I want to thank today's guest, John Branch for joining me on two writers slinging Yang. You can follow John on Twitter at at John branch NYT. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on both iTunes and on Bumpers.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. Music is from the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.